Well, we are in week four of Exodus. Uh, we hope you've been enjoying the series. If you've missed any of it, that video does a great job uh, recapping kind of where we've been and the, and the ground we've covered. We've covered a lot of ground in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so I just want to kind of recap for us as we get into it uh, what are, what's kind of the main theme that we've been hitting. And it's the reality, as was said in that video, that the story of Exodus is not just an ancient story 4,000 some odd years ago, 3,500 years ago. It's your story. It's a, it's a picture of the human condition and what God has done. And so in week one, we, we titled the sermon Captive, Enslaved to Sin. And then in the same way that Israel was captive to uh, Egypt, we are captive to sin. Uh, there's nothing we can do about it. We're not strong enough. There's no way we could overpower our oppressor unless somebody else came and set us free. And so we are very much like the people of Israel in captivity to sin, except for uh, week two, we see chosen, this idea of being selected by God or appointed by God that was um, Moses. And so as Moses was selected and appointed to set people free, we have been chosen and selected to be set free by Jesus. And so uh, wherever you've come from, whatever you've done, you have been commissioned by God to go be a part of setting the captives free, which is what we see in the New Testament as our calling on our life. And then uh, week three was redeemed, that you've been bought at a price. Um, in the same way that uh, Israel had to be redeemed by the shed blood of the lamb under the Passover, we too had to be redeemed, but it wasn't with the blood of lambs, but with the blood of Jesus. Uh, and so uh, the parallels between where they've come from and, and where you've come from, your story, um, don't end there though. They're going to continue on into uh, what we're going to talk about today. And then as David wraps up next week, where the, the conversation kind of ends. But what I want to do is I want to ask you a question this morning that will maybe help you understand a little bit of where Israel is coming from in the text we're going to read today. Um, have you ever taken a huge leap, like a big step of faith, and, and you did it, and you were so confident it was the right one, or at least you are pretty confident it was the right one, and then you get partway down the process, and all of a sudden you're not so sure you made the right decision? <laughs> Right? Like you, you felt like God told you to move and so you did and so you sold your house and you took that new job offer and you're going but then you can't find a house to live in and you're wondering, did I make the right move? Is God's lack of provision right now telling me I made the wrong decision? Maybe you've made the choice to leave work and go home and be with the kids and that seemed like the right decision but then you opened up the budget and went, ugh. I don't know if this looks like the right choice according to these numbers. Maybe you've been led to be really generous, and then in that process of being generous, you wondered where your own bills were going to come from. Anybody relate to that feeling of like, I know I did the right thing, but it sure doesn't feel like it right now, right? That's where we find Israel today because um, they made a decision by choosing to cry out to God and by putting themselves underneath the Passover lamb, they drew a line between their old life and what God was going to do with them. There was no turning back from this moment. They said, we're all in. And so um, you need to understand, though, what they're moving on from and what they're giving up. See, they've been in Egypt for 430 years, which is about 200 years more than America has even existed. Okay, Everything they've known, their food, their homes, their, their culture, everything, God is saying, get up and move. And the best we can tell, there's about 2 million people Okay, so you just asked the entire nation of Puerto Rico to get up and go. Oh, and you're following a guy with a stick. All right. Like, so there's some real provision questions here. If I'm going to step out and follow you, how are you going to show up, God? Right? And so that's what we're going to look at today is there's really kind of three big things. There are three big stories that we're going to work through. Um, but I want you to really think about would I 
have done what Egypt or what Israel did in leaving Egypt? Would I have taken that staff and said, all right, this seems crazy. All you have is a staff that keeps turning into a snake. We're not quite sure what's going on there, um, but we're going to leave everything we've known and follow you. So we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to cover a bit of ground again today. Um, but in Exodus 12, where we're going to pick it up is right after um, the Passover has happened. So the destroyer has come through and has taken the firstborn of Egypt, and Israel is getting ready to run for their lives. So here's uh, where we pick it up, chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and go, and also... Bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in the kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians." So this is the 10th plague. Pharaoh's heart is finally uh, broken over the loss of his child, and he finally commits to honoring and obeying God and says, get out of here. Get out. Go worship him. Um, But on the way out, what's interesting is they don't just leave. God had told um, Moses to tell the Israelites, when you leave, turn to your neighbor and say, um, give me your gold, silver, and clothing. And he uses this word here, plundered, which is a word that would have really only been used when an invading army came in attacked the city, and when they won the city, they were allowed to then plunder. So they would, the victor would get the spoils. And there's this really interesting thing happening here where Egypt or Israel didn't win, right? Like they didn't even fight the battle. They just sat back and watched God uh, destroy their enemies, and yet they get the spoils of the victor. And you see from the very beginning, as God begins to send them off, this pattern that you're going to see through the rest of the text, we're reading that God is giving them things that are way beyond what they deserve. He, he's blessing them with the, the victor or the spoils that are rightfully his. He says, no, 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 you have them. Can you imagine how awkward that conversation must be, though? Like, go to your neighbor, hey, can I have everything nice you own? Why? I'm about to flee the country, right? Like, Sure, take it, right? So there's just this, this crazy thing where really what God is doing is he's resourcing them for the journey ahead. It would have been enough for God just to set them free, but he didn't just set them free. He chose to then set them free and give them everything they needed to survive the journey of living in freedom. And that is true of what he does in your life and my life. He doesn't just set us free from sin. He gives us all of these blessings we don't deserve, which is our main point and kind of our theme for this morning is that he provides blessings I don't deserve. Israel didn't deserve the spoils. They didn't deserve the gold, silver, and clothing. They didn't deserve even the redemption or rescue. And yet God chose to give them something they hadn't earned and something they hadn't deserved as a picture to them of his character. See, they've been living in slavery for so long that they don't really know who God is. You're going to see if you read through Exodus and Numbers that God is having to teach the people who he is because they have no idea. And one of those things is that he's a ridiculously generous and gracious God. The same is true in your life and my life, that he is consistently giving us blessings that we don't deserve. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, which says, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. 
One of the things you receive when you follow Jesus is the Holy Spirit. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit, as it said here in 1 Corinthians, is to show you everything God has freely given you. To show you and help you walk in the spoils that don't belong to you. Joy, peace, comfort, hope. All of the things that we don't deserve, we get and are freely given to us to resource us for the journey. But what you'll find as you walk down this life, and many of you know this, is that when you come to Jesus, there can kind of be this misconception that life just gets peachy afterwards, right? <laughs> like there's just no more bumps in the road because I'm with God now, and um, you know that's not real life, right? You know the process of following Jesus is one that's still real life. There's still real things there. You see, God set them free, but the process of becoming free people was a little bit different. Let's, let's read what happens. Um, chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistines' country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Jump to verse 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. You see God's graciousness in there already because he knows the heart of his people. And he knows if I send them towards the Philistine, which was a, a, another very fierce fighting nation, that they were going to wilt and they were going to quit. And you see even God's kindness towards the people saying, I know you can't handle that. So I'm going to divert you around it. I know your heart is just not ready for that war. So I'm going to move you away. But what you see here also is that God is leading the people with great clarity. So as they look up, what they see is this cloud that is unmistakably guiding them in a pillar of fire at night. And so they know for sure um, when they're following this thing, they're following where God has for them, which is really important because God is going to lead them someplace that they would have never led themselves. God is going to move them into a position that if you or I were leading this group, we would have never put ourselves there, but God is doing something. So let's see what he's doing. Chapter 14, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihariah, yep, that word, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this, jump to verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done, by, done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Did we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Here you have this people who cried out to God for rescue, cried out, God save us, God save us. God saves them. He brings them out of slavery. And what do they want? <laughs> They'd rather die as slaves than risk living as free people. They'd rather go back to what is familiar, go back to what they know, go back to their old way of life, because at least there they knew where provision was coming from. They'd rather do that than risk being free. As I thought about that, I thought, man, isn't that true of us? 
the proposition of leaving behind some of our sin terrifies us. The proposition of leaving behind some of our old ways of life, it really, really scares us. Here's what I mean. Maybe God's asking you to forgive somebody, to let go of that bitterness. And the whole idea of forgiving somebody scares you because what if they could hurt you again? That's, that's a scary thought. <laughs> I don't want to be hurt again. Let me just hang on to some of this unforgiveness and bitterness because it keeps you out there. Maybe God's after your anger. He's trying to get you to let go of your anger. But you know if you let go of your anger, you might lose some control and you kind of like control. And so, man, you really want me to give that up? You really want me to be free? You see, there's some risk involved because sin keeps some of us warm at night. It's something we know. It's something we can control. It's something we feel familiar with. And so uh, we can feel a little bit of what Israel's feeling here of like, ah, I got to go be vulnerable? I got to go depend on God? Yeah. See, what also is happening here is God has, God has led them into a bit of a trap. He's led them into a, a place where if they go this way, they're going to go drown in the sea. If they go this way, they're going to die in the desert. <laughs> if they go this way, they're going to be attacked by their enemy. See, really, God has kind of hemmed them in and, and kind of put them in this position, and maybe you've feel like that sometimes, right? Like you've, you've followed God and you're pursuing him and right, you all probably know this moment if you're trying to follow Jesus that you, you step out and you make the right decision or like there's a couple decisions in front of you but the bad one just seems so much more readily available. <laughs> like it just seems so much easier. Like you're trying to take a step forward and every time you take a step forward, the temptation just is that much stronger. Right? Imagine this moment for them. They're backed into the corner and the army chasing them is the most powerful man on earth who you're responsible for the death of his firstborn, right? You're going to pee your pants too, right? They're freaking out. They know what this means. Let's see how Moses and the Lord replies. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Moses looks at them and he says, don't be soft. You're at war and you're at war for your freedom. Like get some backbone in there, Israel, and stand firm. But what does he not tell them not to do? He doesn't say go fight. He says, be still. The Lord will fight for you. You're at war, but this battle is dependent upon the Lord winning, not you. You see, he backed them into a corner where they would begin to realize it was only through God's deliverance that they were ever going to make it. There was no way they were getting out of this unless God showed up. And I think this may be for some of us here today. That God's backed some of us into a corner. He's put you in a position where you have to stop fighting. <laughs> Like you see the enemy, you see the anxiety, you see the worry, you see what people are saying about you, you see the temptation, you see all of what the world is trying to throw at you to steal your peace. And God is saying, just be still. You can't defeat that anyway on your own. Would you watch because the things that's chasing you down today will one day be no more. The enemy you see in front of you will one day be gone. Just be still. Breathe. Know that he's God and you're not. What's really interesting is what, Jesus, or what the Lord says next to them. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. I find this really interesting. He doesn't say, be still and don't do anything. 
He says, be still and move on. So some of us here today just need to be still and move on. God has told you he's going to take care of that situation. Would you be still and leave worry and move on to hope and peace? God has told you he's going to provide. Would you be still and move on to comfort and joy that he's got this sorted out? God has told you, would you move on from that sin and move on to life of freedom? He's telling some of us that you can't just not move. You've got to move on. But what's really interesting is where he tells them to move on to. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army and through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So where does he tell them to move on to? Through the middle of the ocean, Okay. These are real people, and this is a real ocean. This is not a fake story. So you imagine this moment? God has backed them in, and the only way of deliverance was to walk through the middle of an ocean? <laughs> what? See, what he was doing here was getting them to realize that the only way out was an act of submission to the Lord. The only way out of that moment was if they surrendered and said, okay, I trust you. I commit my life to you because God could have dropped the waters back on them and killed them very easily. So it was an act of faith to go into the water there. And what you see kind of is this, almost this cool picture of baptism. Right? You got the picture of Jesus at the Passover, but then now you see this picture where God's telling them, would you go down into the waters and when you come out, the enemies that have chased you will be defeated. Which in baptism, what we say is we've died to our old life. We know that the only way through is through submission to Jesus, and we'll be raised to newness in life. Here's what happens in the story. Let's jump to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. The Egyptians said, let's go away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Isn't that a cool story? No, not if you're an Egyptian. <laughs> But what you see is God saying, if you would trust me, if you would submit to me, I will provide a way of escape. And on, on the other side of that obedience, your enemies will be no more. Like the Egyptians are literally saying, we're bigger, we're stronger, we're better, yet we're losing. Run. And that's what God wants to do for all of your enemies. See, the truth is that he is fighting battles that you just can't fight. He's fighting battles that you just can't win. And sometimes he's doing it unseen. Sometimes he's redirecting you away from the Philistines because he knows you're going to lose that one because of where your heart's at. So he's going to protect you. He's going to fight for you silently. And then other times you get this front row picture to God delivering you. You get this front row picture to God saying, you know what? I know what they said about you. I know what they accused you of. I know that's not true. Let me defend you. You have only to be still and move on to continue to be who I've called you to be. Anybody relate to that experience? See, he was teaching them, you don't need to be strong, you need to be obedient. You don't need to be skilled, you need to be willing to obey what I say. So you see here also just this picture of being backed into the corner of temptation. 
And what God does here in Israel, he does for you. And this is what we see in 1 Corinthians. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What you see in this picture with the Old Testament nation of Israel is that God has backed him into the corner and said, there's a way out, but the way out is through humble submission and obedience to me. And in the same way, in our spiritual walk, you ever feel just hemmed in by temptation? <laughs> like just, it just seems so appealing and just like, I don't know what else to do with these emotions, but go towards sin, to anger, to whatever your uh, vice might be to deal with those things. But what I want you to see is really interesting. There's kind of this misconception that God won't give you more than you can handle. It's just not true. It's just not consistent in scriptures. God backing Israel into that corner was more than they could handle. And if they had chosen to stay put, it would have been more than they could have bared. Egypt would have come. Egypt would have overtaken them. And Egypt would have killed them. What Paul's talking about here that there's this point where you're pushed to your limits and you have a choice. Will I take the way of escape or will I think I'm strong enough to overcome it? Sin will outsmart you every time. It will outsmart me every time. And so what Paul is talking about here is that there is always a way of escape, but that way of escape is found in humble submission to the Lord. For you and I, it looks like, man, I am feeling backed into the corner. I've got these thoughts going through my head. It's that humble phone call. He says, man, I'm struggling. Got these thoughts in my head. Would you pray for me? I don't know what to do with them. There's a way of escape. But we don't like to take that because it's risky. Because somebody might find out, you are not perfect. Your world would be over. See, but it would only be the enemy that would keep you trapped in that corner because he knows the way of escape is the way to freedom. He knows that if you take the route of the way out that God has provided, that you'd be free. And he doesn't want that for you. You see, God came and delivered Egypt from prison, but the warden was still chasing them down, trying to enslave them again. And God has set you, if you followed him, free from the prison of sin, but yet the enemy is still chasing you down. He's still trying to get you to believe that you're not free. He's still trying to get you to believe that you're a captive to his ways. He's still trying to get you to believe that the only way out is through sin. What this says is that there's a way out, and it leads to freedom we just have to be willing to take it. To submit ourselves and say, all right, God, I'm into your plan and your process, not mine. What we see in these stories here is, is really true of all of our lives, but it's, it's this not awesome thing that sometimes I wish wasn't true, but it's this reality that God doesn't remove us from real life. He sustains us through it. God doesn't remove us from the reality of the brokenness of the world around us. He sustains us through it. He didn't take Israel out of Egypt and then just move them to the promised land. He took Israel out of Egypt and he began to use the brokenness of life to shape them, to reveal to them who he is, to show them his mercy despite the world's brokenness. He began to use real life to teach them. And I think what happens is there's this misconception that we come to God and life should just be good. We should get what we want. We should get the blessings we want. Like, if we didn't believe that somewhere in us, we wouldn't say when something bad happens to us, God, I've been following you. Why did this have to happen? Why me? That why me statement reveals that we think God should have pulled us out of this mess already. 
And the reality is he's using it. We're going to read two more stories as we close up from Israel talking about this very reality for them because God was going to use the hardships of life to draw out some things in their heart. And as you read these stories, I don't want you to, or as you listen to these stories, I don't want you to sit in judgment of Israel um, because Israel is us. They they are really a picture of the human heart. And so um, let's read these stories together really with a mirror in our hands and what God might be showing us about our expectation of who God is and what he should do. Chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction. Uh, for them to put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. How many days has it been since the Red Sea? Three days. It's in verse 22. In three days, they already begin to doubt God's goodness. In three days, they already begin to doubt that God sees. But I want you to notice, how did God reply? Didn't he reply with incredible grace? (laughs) He just turned the water that was once undrinkable into drinkable water in front of them. Did they have to grumble to get that? I don't think so. They could have just asked. And that wasn't enough, though. See, because he knows they're captives. He knows they're thinking as slaves. And so he goes a step further. And not only does he give them water right in front of them, he literally leads them to an oasis. Twelve springs and palm trees. He took them to Disneyland, essentially, in the desert. And just let them rest and let them be. You see this incredible graciousness of the heart of God. I hear hear you grumbling. Watch me provide. I hear you. Watch me provide even more than you thought. It's just this incredible grace that he's trying to teach them. Let's read this next one. The whole Israelite community set out, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Did you hear that? (laughs) They would have rather die than be free. The Israelites said to them, "Uh, there we sat around the pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. If you were here the last couple of weeks, I talked about the whole reason they were in captivity in the first place was their appetites. Their appetite ultimately is what led them into captivity. And here they're willing to go back to captivity because of their appetite. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? 
Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against them. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. In the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. A hunter's dream. You wake up and all your food's right there. This dew eventually would become manna and turn into bread. And isn't it interesting? Their appetite said, let us go back to captivity because at least there we were familiar. And God's saying, no, no, no. I have all of the food and bread you want, more than you want, abundantly more than you want, and all you have to do is wake up and grab it. It's right there. All of the blessings I have for you. Isn't it interesting, though? This is only two and a half months after leaving Egypt. It only took two and a half months for them to forget that God heard their cry from slavery. Two and a half months for them to forget that God just put a smackdown on 10 Egyptian gods and delivered them. Two and a half months to forget that God spared their life through the Passover lamb. Two and a half months to forget that God provided silver and gold and everything they needed for their trip. And then they forgot that God parted an entire ocean so they could walk through it. And then he covered up and destroyed their enemies so they could be free forever. And then they forgot that God provided water for them to drink. And then they forgot that the presence of God was literally in front of them in a cloud. And all they could think about was what God hadn't done yet. See, what happens for them is they were so focused on what they thought God forgot to do, they began to forget all that God has already done. They forgot the goodness of God that has been so true in their life. And I know how easy that is for me. See, every time I grumble against the Lord about what I don't have, it reveals I have forgotten what I actually deserve. Every time I grumble against God about what I don't have, it reveals I have forgotten what I actually deserve. And what did Israel actually deserve? Nothing. They were idol-worshiping sinners who chose to rebel against God and go other places. And yet God in his mercy pursued them, chased them, set them free, and then gave them everything they needed. What did I deserve? death. According to my sin that I, I willfully ran after, deserved death. And yet God sent his son to, to buy me back from sin, to give me new life, to set a spirit inside of me. I certainly didn't deserve the spirit of God inside of me. And so I, I find this to be true, that we really think God owes us more than he does. I've tried to live my life by this statement and it's the way I think, the way I pray, the way I just process life and it's this truth that God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe me a thing. He didn't owe me salvation, doesn't owe me my wife, doesn't owe me my child, doesn't owe me a good, healthy longevity, 85 years. He doesn't owe me to be cancer free. He, he doesn't owe me any of that. Doesn't owe me my home, doesn't owe me this church, doesn't owe me anything. And so if God chooses to take some of those things, they were gifts in the first place. I'm not entitled to them. If God chooses not to give me some of those things, 
I didn't deserve them anyway. And that's humbling, but it's also freeing. Because at the end of the day, I have received many of those things out of the overflow of his goodness, of his kindness, and his love for me. You have received abundantly more than you could ask or imagine through Jesus. Yet we get fixated on the one thing we think he's forgotten. We get fixated on the one thing we think he's yet to do. You see, the, the tragedy about the people of Israel in the wilderness is that they spent 40 years being free but living as slaves. They spent 40 years being a free people but choosing to think like a captive. I don't have, I don't have, rather than thinking like a free people who said, I'm free and I follow a God who has everything I need. See, Galatians 5.1 says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We get back to that yoke of slavery because we think that God isn't going to satisfy the appetite and desires of our heart. Because we think we have to go someplace else to get what we need because God must be holding out on us. It's just not true. God is giving you more than you need. He's freely giving it as we saw in 1 Corinthians. The way we stay free is by staying grateful. The way we stay free is by remembering all that he's already done for us, that I don't have to go anywhere else to find it. He has it. So for you today, maybe the challenge is that, that you would not go back to your former way of life. That in those hard moments, when it feels like it's pressing in, that your heart wouldn't cry out for Egypt, whatever your Egypt may be. Maybe you're feeling hemmed in by temptation and God is saying, there's a way of escape, would you take it? Maybe for you, you need to move on. Move on from that thing. Maybe for you today, it's that we would take stock in what happened to Israel. See, because there was a couple words that marked Israel's time in the wilderness, and it was these words. Doubt, complaining, and worry. If somebody were to identify your life with one of these sets of words, which would be true? Would doubt, complaining, and worry be the marker of your life? Or would thanksgiving, gratitude, and anticipation be the marker of your life? And the question really is, which one do you want to be true of your life? Because the sad reality for most of the nation of Israel is that they wandered for 40 years marked by doubt, complaint, and worry, and they did not get to see the blessings that God has for them. They did not get to experience the promise. They did not get to experience the free life. There was a couple who did. Those men, Joshua and Caleb, chose to follow God, chose to see all of his goodness, and they got to experience all that God had for them. But the same is true for us. You will miss out on the goodness that God has for you here in real life if we begin to quickly think he owes us something. He, he doesn't, yet in his lavish mercy has given you abundantly more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as I read these passages, I'm overwhelmed with your graciousness towards us. I think of how often I have been guilty of doubt and, and grumbling and worrying and so quickly dismissing the miracle you just did or so quickly dismissing the goodness you just poured out on us. God, I pray that we would be experts in what you've done in our life. That whatever temptations, whatever trials, whatever difficulties hemmed us in, that we would fight back with the goodness of God. 
that you've been so good. You have met. You have provided. Lord, I pray for every heart in this room that, it, that as there are difficult times for each one of us, that we would never turn and shake our fist at you and say, you owe us, God, but we would sit in humble gratitude for what you have already done. I pray that as a people, we would, as we're coming into the Thanksgiving season, just be marked with gratitude, marked with thanksgiving, marked with an anticipation of what you're going to do, God. We love you and we praise you and we give you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.